Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning? We're going to start off with verse 11. We're still talking about respecting God's order. This is part two of a message we began last week. Very deep waters that we're walking in right now. I remember when I was growing up, I had a good buddy that loved the trout fish like I did. And we used to fish the rivers and the streams in Virginia. And we, the summertime would come and it was wonderful because we'd take our socks and shoes off, put on a pair of shorts. And actually we put tennis shoes on so we wouldn't hurt our feet on those rocks. And we'd just walk up and down those streams mainly to get wet and stay cool. Like we had a wonderful time. And one day we had finished fishing and we were just really goofing off. And we were walking back to the car right down the middle of the stream, just singing to the top of our lungs. I've always been real inhibited and we were just singing as loud as we could sing, just Christian choruses and songs. And I had a hat on, dumb looking hat on. I knew the water was deep in places, but I didn't know it had some holes in it like this one. And I all of a sudden stepped into a hole. You could have put two cars end to end in that thing. I mean, when I went under, I never did hit the bottom, matter of fact. And I was trying to get up, watering my tennis shoes, trying to get up. And Andy said that Wayne, he said, the funniest part of it was your hat just kept sailing down there. <laughs> right down the river, but you had disappeared. He said, I was so deep, the top, the tip of my rod, you couldn't even see the tip of my rod. That's how deep I went down into that hole. Well, I don't know why I brought that up except to say that in studying 1 Corinthians, I feel like I just stepped into a hole in chapter 11. This water's deep. It's way over my head, and I hope you're praying for me as we work our way through it. Paul has been asked some questions. Now, before I get into that, though, God has an order of how things should function and of how things are designed to be. He's the potter, we're the clay. We don't, we don't uh, the clay never messes with the potter because the clay doesn't understand fully what that design is all about. When I'm willing and when you're willing to submit to Christ and let Jesus be everything in you and in me, what happens is we, he gives us a deep respect for his order. And if whatever that order may be, whatever function that may be, maybe a wife to a husband, maybe a, a husband in his walk with God or whatever. But in that order, we have a respect for it. Why? Because we've solved the first step. The first step is our absolute abandonment unto Christ. When I'm submitted that way, then whatever other design God has is really no problem to me at all. However, if I'm not willing to submit and abandon myself to Christ, then God's order becomes an issue with me and I'm always trying to turn upside down what God says should be right side up. A question's been asked of the Apostle Paul. We don't know what the question is. We just have the answers. That's what's been difficult since chapter seven. When you have the answers, but you don't have the questions. 
And this question evidently had to do with the role of women in the church, particularly the role of wives to their husbands. Again, we don't have the question, but we do have Paul's answer. Paul begins, and verse one of chapter 11 to me is the key verse for the rest of the chapter. It seems to me like that's the well everything else flows out of. At first I didn't see it, but now I see it clearly how it attaches itself to what he's gonna say. He says in verse one of chapter 11, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now if you think imitating Christ like Paul said he did, if you think you can imitate Christ, you've got another thing coming. When Christ would walk by a man who, who was dead, sometimes he would raise him from the dead. Help yourself. When he would walk by someone at the pool of Siloam, he was sick, he healed him. I mean, you can't walk like Jesus. However, there is something about Jesus and the way he lived that Paul imitated that Paul wants us to imitate. And what is that? Jesus chose to be absolutely in submission to his father. That was a choice he made, equal to his father, but when he became the God-man, he chose to line himself up under his father. Over in John chapter 14 and verse 10, we read this last week, but this is just in review because I've got to get back in last week's message to get into this week's message. Or those of you who missed last week won't have a clue where we're headed today. It says in John 14 and verse 10, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? He said, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Now, the Father abiding in him. Of course he's God. Of course he's equal to the Father. But you see the example he's giving to us. In verse 13 of John 14, he goes on to say that when that takes place, the Father is then recognized or glorified in him. He says, and whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, this is the example. This is what Paul imitated as Christ was to the Father, Paul was to Christ. He lived in subjection to Christ, submitted to him. As the Father was to Christ, so Christ is to Paul. Where the Father was glorified in the Son, the Son now is glorified in us. And that's the way Paul says, live this way. When we live this way, God's order is not a problem because it's him in us now, enabling us to understand and enabling us to, to submit to that which God has designed. Well, they weren't living that way in Corinth. Corinth was an upside down church. Matter of fact, we saw in chapter one, verse 12, and chapter three, verse four, that attached themselves to men rather than attaching themselves to Christ. Everything the flesh offered, they'd attached to, but not Christ. And as a result of that, they're not imitating Paul and they're not imitating Christ. They're not living in that surrender, that abandonment unto God. Well, history records that during the Roman Empire's time, and this was right during the time of the writing of the letter to Corinth, there was a feminist movement that broke out. You know, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. It's amazing to me how we think that so many new things are happening. They're not new. They've been around for a long time. This movement had obviously affected Corinth, one of the major cities under their domination. And evidently, many of the believing women had bought into it. Uh, the custom of believers in Corinth had been for a, forever a, a unique custom. And in that culture, that custom had been in respecting God's order, a certain way that the women would dress when they would come to pray and prophesy and a certain way the men would look and had to do with a covering they would wear on their heads. When the women came to pray and to prophesy, you say, well, Brother Wayne, if the women could prophesy, now don't get on me yet. That's in chapter 14, so we'll get there 
soon enough. I'm not gonna attack that right now. Right now, I'm afraid of it. I'm gonna wait until I get to chapter 14 before I deal with it. You, you handle it and you just write me letters. Tell me what, what you think I ought to say and I won't do a bit of it. Anyway, that's coming. But they had coverings over their head when they'd go to pray and prophesy. Why? Because that set them apart from the pagan women of the world, the immoral women of the world. This showed everybody that they were under subjection. They respected God's order and they were under the subjection to their husband. This was something very unique, very cultural, but it held within it the germ of, of, and the seed of an eternal principle. But when the feminist movement came around and it hit Corinth big time, though some of the women in the church bought into it. And I don't like to talk about these things. This is just the text. I mean, I gotta do chapter 11 before I do chapter 12. We're, we're, we're wading our way through it. And uh, just like the pagan women, they wanted the same equality as men. They took their veil off. Some of them even shaved their heads as, as scripture, as history records. And they wanted to look like the men. In fact, they stopped taking care of their children and assigned that to the husbands and started looking for jobs that had traditionally been given to men. Does that sound familiar to anybody? So Paul approaches this difficult subject. Somebody in the church of Corinth, they're upside down and everything else. They're also upside down here. So somebody approached this thing and, and wrote him a question, so now he wades in. He starts by complimenting them on remembering the things that he had taught them. Remember, he had been their first pastor for a year and a half, then Apollos followed him. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse two, he says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now the traditions, the everything has to do with the teachings that he had given to them as we covered last week. Now, the next thing he says, however, isn't it interesting? He compliments on, on remembering what he said, but the next thing he says now, it'd be good if you understood what I said. How many people can go to church for 15 years and hear 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 and never understand a single thing they've heard? And so Paul begins in verse three, he says, but I want you to understand. And the word there means to fully comprehend and grasp the significance of something. He said, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Now he sets up three examples of biblical spiritual order that a man must have nailed down. These are foundational things. He says Christ is the head of every man. Now, it's obvious to any of us that know the word of God, it's obvious to, to the fact that, that every man is under the headship of Christ. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Even lost men are technically under the Lordship of Christ. We don't make Christ Lord, he is Lord, always has been always will be, but that's not his context here. In fact, the word for men is not the generic term which would include all mankind, but it's the word for the male, the male gender, anir. It's the word that means masculine, man. And he's, boy, he gets right to the answer to the question he's been asked. Remember, this is not a full treatise on this subject. This is an answer to a question that has been written to him. Because of the union by faith, he has in mind a believing man who's up under the headship of Jesus Christ. Now, he implies, it's not explicit, but implicit, that there's been a union by faith. You see, when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we become a part of his body. But every body, every body, <laughs> every body <laughs> requires a head. And Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. That's God's order. God established it that way. No questions. 
I hear people say, well, Brother Wayne, I, I believe in a democratic form of government. That's in the book of Hesitations, chapter 17 and verse 11. Because people say, well, we are a democracy, aren't we? No, we are not. I beg your pardon, show me in scripture where we are. We're not a democracy. We, in fact, we are a divine dictatorship and Jesus is the head of the body. He has appointed elders to make sure he's heard and, and there's an order and function within the church. But Jesus Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the head of every man. Secondly then, the man is the head of a woman. Now, but his principle really, he, he shifts gears here. The first, the first headship requires a union. The second headship requires a union. I mean, I'm not authority over some woman. And, I, and many people take this in a very general sense and say, this is men and this is women. And I don't. Now, if that's different and we disagree, I'm sorry, we just disagree. I look at it as, as a husband has, is the head of his wife. There's a union there. By marriage, they're united and have become one, as the scripture says in Genesis and repeated over and over again. But everybody needs a head. And the man or the husband is the head of his wife. There are two functions. There are two pillars there. This is God's order. God's the head of every man. The man is the head of, of, of his wife. And then thirdly, the supreme example of the order that God has established. Verse three, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Anytime the word God and Christ are using the same verse as speaking of two different uh, personalities, you have the definite article always there, which is here, which means God the Father is the head of God the Son. You say, well, what union is there there? I thought they were both one. They are. But by, by choice, there was a choice. When, when Christ became man, he chose to line up under the headship of his Father, even though he's equal to the Father. He chose to line up under it. We already read that in John in Philippians chapter two. It says he emptied himself of his glory and he subjected himself to his father and became obedient even unto death. But it was a, a relationship by choice. He is God, always has been God. But that's the way they chose to do it. The God man chose to submit to the father. So what you have here are three pictures of headship. The order that God has established. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of his wife, but the supreme example is the father is the head over the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now that begins to set the pace for where we're going. The implicit thought that comes to me out of those three examples is if Jesus Christ, the son of God, would leave his glory, he would, he would empty himself of his glory and the right to use his power for his own benefit and come down and be born of a virgin, not to enter a body, but to, but to become a body of flesh and to be subjected to his father. The implicit thing that hit me just in that opening principle here is if he would do that, who in the world do we think we are to reverse any order that God has established for us? That's exactly to me what he's saying. <clears throat> Actually, for me, he could have stopped right there. It caused a lot less confusion because <laughs> he solved the whole problem right there. Who in the world does a woman think she is by not submitting to her husband? Who in the world does a man think he is by not submitting to Christ? If Christ himself became submissive in the order that God had established, who do we think we are to reverse that design? Well, <clears throat> he begins now his treatise here of the, speaking of the believing men and the custom. Now remember, there are two highways running side by side. There's the culture and the custom and there's the eternal principle of submission to God. And then God being recognized in us 
and us respecting the design that God has. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the culture of Corinth, here's what he says in verse four. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, in other words, a man's head is Christ. He's not to be covered. He's under the authority of Christ. And in their culture, to show this and to distinguish the believing men from the pagan men of that area, this is the way they would come to public worship, to pray or to prophesy. The reverse, however, is true of the wife in the culture of Corinth. In verse five, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or, or prophesying disgraces her head. Now, after saying those two things and beginning to show how culture already has been set up, and in, it, in, that, in that cultural custom, there is an eternal principle, then Paul seems to pull away from the man as much, and he begins to zero in on the woman, which leads me to believe that was the question that was asked originally. In verse five, he adds something at the end of that verse. He said, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, why? For she then is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. Now what's he saying here? What he's saying is that if they violate that custom which has been there for years and years and years and years, which sets apart the believer from the pagan, what happens is she identifies herself with the pagan women of that area. The prostitutes up on the, the temple of Aphrodite, they had a thousand of them. They shaved their heads. That's how you knew who they were. And the adulteresses, those who had committed immorality, had to shave their head. And he says, if she's gonna come and disgrace her head by not wearing a covering, then she might as well go ahead and shave her head and become one of them. She's making herself identified with those who do not respect God nor his order. Now, Paul doesn't want the believers in Corinth, however, to confuse submission with equality. This is a problem that happens all the time. When you get into God's order, sometimes you can get upside down in your thinking if you don't have this nailed down. Just because a, a man's the head of the woman does in no way mean the man in God's eyes is more important than the woman. See, this is gonna come up later on in our message. That's one of the problems that happens. They're equal, but there's gotta be order. There must be function. And so God has, has dis distinguished an order and that is that the, the wife submit to her husband. He says over in verse seven, for a man, he begins to balance the equation here, for the man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. Now, what does that mean? Uh, the image and glory of God, God made him. So therefore glory means to be recognized, a proper estimate. And so therefore, if he's the glory of God, since God made him, then you can see God in man, you see. And so for, for God, for instance, to speak evil of man would be to speak evil of himself because he made man. But the same principle here, but the woman is the glory of man. Now what, what it says to me, and I, again, this is just Wayne, I'm walking through this, but what it says to me is, hey big boy, if you ever wanna degrade a woman, you better watch it before you say anything because you just degraded yourself. A woman originally came from the rib of a man. So really in the woman can be seen the glory of man, just like in a man can be seen the glory of God. Then in verse eight, he says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. He continues to go back to that order and build around it. In other words, the original first woman came from the rib of a man. The man did not come from the woman. He was created by God. That's an interesting thought. And he says, but woman from man. Now, then he restates it again, verse nine. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, 
but woman for the man's sake. And then he goes on to show again how important it is for women to be under that authority and to wear that covering which was the cultural way of indicating to others that you were under that authority. In verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Why? Because of the angels. Now this is interesting to me and I'm in water way over my head but I'm gonna shoot at it anyway. He's already mentioned Jesus and how he submitted to the Father. Now he goes into the realm of the angels, far beyond anything I can comprehend. And in the angels, you have the cherubim, you have the seraphim, you have the archangels, etc. And you've got an order, a rank and file, an order. And it's a system. And God set it up. And the angel knows nothing but submission. He submits to the Father and he also submits to one another. In other words, they're angels in different ranks of authority. Now there's something else about that. If the angels are submissive to one another and also to Christ, then we have to remember that there's no women angels. <laughs> now the angels are here today, hello guys, but you can't see them. And they're awed by the worship that man has of them, of God. And they, they probably are also awed at the long suffering and patience God has in putting up with man. Because they witness women who would not submit to a husband and they witnessed that as an act of insubordination and an actual reproach to everything they've been taught that redemption even means. And so he gives two areas here that we cannot even enter into. One is Christ's submission to his father, the other is angels. And he said women ought to have a covering on her head in respect for what the angels do and are that are all around her but she cannot see them. Well. To think along with Paul, we, we move now from the portrait of submission, which is Paul and Christ, really Christ is being the picture. The purpose of submission, when you submit to God and to his design, you show respect to him and you show respect to that order that he has set up. But then the third thing that we're gonna look at today, and this is where we pick up, is the problem with submission. And I mentioned it a while ago. The problem is some redneck somewhere, here's the fact that he's the head of his wife and he begins to think in his eyes he's more important to God than the woman is. This is so ridiculous. Chauvinism, male chauvinism, is just as, as much a sin as the feminist people would be. On both sides you've got wrong. There, there are equals here, but you have order and God has established them that way. Man's authority over his wife is something that's simply delegated by God. And, and we'll have to get to heaven to understand all of that. We're here to submit and respect the way God has set it up, believing the fact that he that created us has the right to do that. Look in verse 11. He says, however in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of women. If you wanna take that in a general sense, you can realize in this world how we need one another. But I think it's more narrowed than that. I think it more to the husband and the wife because there is a team effort there. You can say that in the church certainly because there are women who have wonderful gifts and how God uses them and how we need each other. But I think more so in the, in the, in the authority structure he's already set up. And a husband needs his wife, but a wife needs her husband. You can't live independent of each other. The word independent means to be without, to be separate or apart from something or by itself. You're not that way. The wife needs the husband, the husband needs the wife. They're a help me to each other. They're a team, but all the years that I've been in sports, I don't care what team you have, you've got to have a quarterback. You've got to have somebody that calls the plays. 
And so what he's saying is there's equality among the two, but somebody has got to be the head. And God's order, his choice, not ours, not man's, not woman's, his choice is that the man, the husband, be the one who's the head over the woman. Paul again shows the order does not come from man or woman, but it comes from God. Look in verse 12. It's sort of subtle. The last part of it's the key. For as a woman originates from uh, man, actually the word from is ek, out of, so also the man has his birth through, via, through the woman. The picturesque here, uh, the symbology is beautiful here. And then it says, and all things, all things, everything, <laughs> originates from the word ek, out of God. In other words, hey guys, what are you doing? You came from me. I, I know, I know, Adam. She came from you, but I made you. But all things come from me. It's like he's putting a big exclamation point. Hey, what are you arguing about? If I made all things and all things come from me and everything originates from me, then I have a right to set the order the way I want to set it. You see, it's God's order and it's his prerogative to set it the way he wants to set it. When a man thinks he's better than a woman, that's just not so. God is the one who, from whom all things come but however has delegated him to be the head of the woman who's his equal, but yet has to submit to him in, in the sense of the marriage situation. The problem comes when man does not realize God is the one who established the order or when woman does not realize that God is the one who has established the order. So you got the portrait of submission. The purpose of submission is to show you respect for the order of God. And the problem of submission is you begin to equate submission with equality. And, and you think that because somebody has to submit to you, you are more important to God than that person. And that's a terrible error that people make even today and especially even in Chattanooga. Men think that submission of their wives is from some inferior person to himself. And remember, in the culture of this time, women were treated like dirt. Thank God for the gospel because it raised and elevated the position of a woman and she's equal with man in God's eyes. There's neither male nor female in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in the marriage situations that we live in, God has to have an order and we must respect that order. Well, the final thing I wanna share, it's gonna take a little longer, is the prerequisite of submission. In other words, what I mean by that is the prerequisite for anybody understanding the order of God is that submission. Going back to verse one of chapter 11. It's an absolute must in our life that we live surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. For Wayne, for you, for all of us, no big eyes, little use. Ground is equal and level at the cross. The same thing you, you're up to every week and, and the responsibility you have is the same responsibility I have. Paul now says that there's another teacher besides himself. He says, I'm just gonna step aside for a minute. The way he develops this. He says, you've heard me, I've, I've taught you. I hope you're now understanding what I've taught you. But I'm gonna back out, I'm gonna let something else teach you. He wants the Corinthians to look around them and see that if they can already see in nature a distinction of man and woman. Men and women are different. I know you're saying, Wayne, duh. But yeah, that's right, we're different, we're different uh, in the way we think, the way we look, but especially there's another difference and it goes back to the beginnings of history. Nobody can even begin to argue with this. Short hair for a man <laughs> and long hair for a woman has been from the birth of history the way in which they were separated in their appearance, which also later on led to be separating in their roles, each one of them. 
One can see this in the Nazarite vow. It was a shame for a man to have long hair. But when a person would put themselves under a Nazarite vow, he had to bear the shame of being looked at with long hair because he was obedient unto God in that vow. Paul put himself under a Nazarite vow. You can see that even there. In the catacombs, in all of the historical findings that they have of drawings of mankind, the men had short cropped hair and the women had long hair. It's been that way since the beginnings of time. This is a distinctive way, not just one of them, but a distinctive way in which we see women and men being separate from one another. Now, look how Paul approaches this in verse 13. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Now the word judge is crino. Make a decision, look around you, take what I've said, look around you and see some other things, but come to a decision, come to a conclusion. Is it proper? The word proper is the word prepo. It means to be conspicuous, but it has an impl implied meaning of fitting or proper or suitable. Paul says, I'm gonna let you decide for yourself. Look around you at the conspicuous things that seem to be fitting or seem to be suitable for man and suitable for woman. Without, any, without anything from me, you just look around yourself. Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Now, when he mentions nature, we, we throw that term around loosely, but the word is a significant word here. It's translated nature, but it's used several times in scripture. And I wanna show you how it's used so you kind of get an idea of the, it's the constitution of something. It's how something is made. It's like, if you wanna know what something is, you go to the root of it, you go to the core of it, see what's on the inside. That's kind of the idea of the word nature. Romans 1.26 says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. You see it? The constitution, the, the thing that they're made out of, the thing that's always been there, the thing that de determines them, distinguishes them, they changed it. Romans 2, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. That which is, you don't even have to be taught. It's just something that comes instinctively. Romans eleven twenty four, 24. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. See, the, the idea of what something is in its, in its very essence, that which it does without even thinking, it's instinctive. Ephesians 2, 3 uses the word. He says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So when you think of nature, you think of that which doesn't even have to think. It's just something that has evolved that way. It's become that way. And as a result of that, he says, look around you. Look at how women wear their hair. Look how men wear their hair. And it'll tell you something that's been here all along. The distinctive different roles of men and women. And that that hair for the woman has been a covering ever since she was born. And so should she not wear a covering on her head when she comes to pray or prophesy? Verse 14 says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? And then Paul, is, he's just saying, look around. Then he goes and reverses it. He says in verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. In other words, if she didn't have a veil, God had already given her a covering. That's her long hair. He already has set her aside in her role and in her difference from the man, but the man has the short hair. That's what he was saying. Now, 
he comes down to a verse here that I wrestle with. <laughs> Do you ever wrestle with verses and just wonder, what in the world is this thing saying? And I beat my head against the wall practically trying to understand why Paul brings this up. And I'm gonna shoot at it. I was watching a program the other day on the Duda channel and they were giving their opinion so I can give mine. <laughs> now, we're the Bereans, go check it out, see if it'd be so. If you disagree, you disagree. I'm not telling you, you have to take this home and say it's what God said, because I'm still struggling with it. But here's what I see in verse 16. Look at this. But if one is inclined to be contentious, <laughs> we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, let's work, work our way through it, and I'll tell you where I am on it, and then you, you work your way through it, tell me where you are on it, and we'll just both disagree because you're wrong. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Look at this statement. If one is inclined to be contentious, um, the word inclined is the word dokeo. It means, uh, it's translated seem to be contentious, like, like in the King James. It means to be of the reputation or to think or to suppose himself. But the word contentious is the word. It comes from two Greek words. One means a lover of a cherry, somebody's fond of something, the word for friend, philos. And what the other word means, strife. Now immediately I knew that this was a Baptist church. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Here's a person who loves strife. He loves to be contentious. He loves to use something that's been clearly taught to bring contention in the body of Christ. He says, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. You know what I think he's doing here? <laughs> Lord help me, I'm gonna step out here. I think he's saying, some of you want me to go on and say that I need to, need to determine the dress and I need to determine the hair length of you people there in Corinth. You love this teaching and it's clear as a bell to you but you love to use even what's teaching, that that's which is meant to free people, you love to use it to put them right back into bondage. And I think what he's saying is that in the church, we are never to put a rule on how somebody dresses or how long their hair ought to be or whether they wear a hat or don't wear a hat, but what we do put the rule on is that a person within the body of Christ is to submit to Christ inwardly and if you're living inwardly subjected to him, it'll show outwardly with respect to him and respect for his order and respect for the way you look at others because you're drawing attention to him, you're not drawing attention to yourself. I think, well, that's what I think he's doing. You know, if you're, well, <laughs> if you're visiting with us today and you're riding through Chattanooga, keep your windows rolled up real tight because there's enough legalism in this town it's going to get on you if you roll your windows down. <laughs> there are people who love passages like this. Oh, they love it. Oh, they feed off of it. They breed contention with God's teaching in the Word of God. They take something that's right and make it something that's strifeful in the body of Christ. Can you imagine? <laughs> there are people here in this town who say, if you have hair over your ears, it's too long, you have sin in your heart. I say, if you have hair over your heart, you have sin in your ears. <laughs> let, me, let me just throw a scenario. Let me just throw something at you. Now, I've just been thinking this thing too, but let me just throw it at you. Let's just say we, we just heard the teaching from Paul. Now remember, it's cultural and eternal, two roads running side by side. We don't have that culture today. So therefore, it's difficult for us to enter into exactly what he's talking about. We don't wear robes. We don't do exactly the way they did it. 
But let me just throw a scenario. So let's just say we took that thing literally. All right, first of all, we're going to have to all go out and throw, throw your clothes away and buy robes. Now, we're going to have to determine today what color those robes need to be because red is a color of an immoral person. <laughs> no, it's not. But I'm saying, we'll come up with these robes because somebody sees red dresses everywhere. Oh, no, 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 time out. <laughs> Some people think that though. Raise your hand if you grew up in an age when red always pictured that kind of thing. Come on, come on, yeah, you're out there. You know what I'm talking about. So we're gonna have to decide the color of the robes. Secondly, we're gonna have to get a committee to decide the length of the robes. I remember I went to a camp one time. This camp said it had rules. And you could wear shorts, but you had to be able to put a dollar bill from the bottom of the shorts to the knee. Been to a camp like that? You don't love God if you have a pair of shorts on that you can put more than a dollar bill between your knee and those shorts. But I want to tell you something. I'm six seven, and this doodah that put that rule out was about five six. <laughs> my shorts, <laughs> my legs are longer than his. So am I spiritual or not spiritual? You see what you get into when you get when you get this kind of stuff. Paul is simply answering a question. It is never the church's prerogative to set such a dress code. I know people in this church right today that when I was sitting up here and we had the chairs up here, I saw them walk in the back door and if we'd have had those rules, we'd have kicked them out on the street. But if I didn't have, if I had the nerve to embarrass them, I'd bring them up here today and show you the difference that the word of God made in their life because they came in, heard the message, got up under Christ and as a result of that, dressed differently from that point on and nobody told them. Hey, listen, I'd grow my hair longer if I could. <laughs> There's something happened to me. I'm fixing to hit 55, and you know, the hair now is growing out my ear and my nose. <laughs> so maybe it's more spiritual to have a beard. <laughs> Gosh sakes. You could take this thing and make a cookbook out of it if you had somebody who was bent towards strife and contention. That's a person who's never submitted their hearts to Jesus Christ. They love the rules to use them to break somebody else with them. And I think what Paul is saying is we have no such moral code. That word there, uh, behavior, has the idea of morals, has behavior, that which ethical, those ethical things, ethos is the word. And he says we don't have that kind of moral code in the church, nor do any other churches. Now your culture is gonna tell you something and if the culture is there, don't rise up with a contentiousness and go the other route with that and say, I'm gonna change it just because of the culture. No, if people already have that mindset, then you allow that to dictate to you what you need to be and to do so that you show proper respect for the order of God. But don't go make this a law or you've got huge problems. How about the veil? What color are we gonna make the veil? And how long are we gonna make it up? Your veil is too short. It came to the top of your nose instead of the bottom of your nose. I mean, can't you see the Pharisees having a ball with something like this? Paul's the greatest teacher on grace in the scriptures. But I wanna tell you something else. He's the wisest man that I've ever studied apart from Jesus and God's word. How he knows how to get in this situation and allow God to so sensitize him that even the culture he doesn't try to rebel against it. He allows it to be used for the purpose of showing others that he's submissive to Christ and he respects the order of God. But he can move to another one over here and switch gears again. You say, well, that guy doesn't point any direction. He does. His whole direction the whole time was pointing right towards Christ. His focus was Christ. Submitted to Christ, you have no trouble with the order 
of God. But if you're not submitted to Christ, buddy, you're going to take this teaching of a woman's role and you're going to beat somebody up with it. You're going to be the very one that's going to try to turn the whole thing upside down because you have not bought it. You do not, because until you come to the point of abandonment in your life, your role will never be fully grasped or understood. There'll always be those, however, that'll take a clear teaching and make a law out of it and bring strife and contention to the body of Christ. Well, look over in Ephesians chapter five. I want to show you something. I'm getting a little angry. I'm not sure that this anger is righteous anger. Usually when you have a doubt about it, confess it because it's not righteous. <laughs> I walk too fine a line. I want to tell you folks, people are running every direction about what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Let me show you one of the things that reflects the fact that you are under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine. That's something from the outside you take to the inside that controls you. For that's waste, that's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. The word filled has the idea of being under the dominance of something, to be under the control of something. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. I'm telling you, God just puts a song in your heart when you're living and walking in that kind of submission. You can be in the midst of the worst situation in your life, but the song is louder and louder as, as you can hear it because it's God giving you that overwhelming joy, the fruit of his spirit. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things. Man, <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious, these people that say, well, I got the gift of tongues or I, I, got, I, had to, I was healed or whatever else. I want to tell you something. If you're not thankful for all things in your life, then you have not yet come to the place that the Holy Spirit of God is absolutely in control of you. It looks back as well as up and as well as forward. He says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Look at verse 21. And... Be subject to one another. You know what that word subject is? Submissive, ipotasso. Be willing to allow the order of God to so affect you that you're willing to sub subject yourself even to the Christ in others. And how do you do that? He says, always be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You see, I think somehow we've gotten this thing turned upside down. One of the first ways that you see that a person's filled with the Spirit of God, totally subjected to Him, is a respect for God's order, a willingness even to subject to the Christ and others with the attitude of an awesome respect for and a deep reverential awe of who the Lord Jesus is. And we're willing to live that way. I know that there are men here that have started your companies and you submit to nobody. That's all right. I mean, that, that's okay in your business world. But don't ever carry that attitude of the business world into the, your life as a Christian because God says it won't float. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of his wife. And the ultimate picture that should settle it for all of us, that Christ chose to become submissive to his father. So he says to the wives, whatever question was asked, what he said, whatever to the women, he says, he says to them, he says, you do what you do. You ought to have a covering over your head when you pray or prophesy. If nothing else, in respect of the angels who are there watching you, it would be a reproach to the divine order of God to take his function and order and try to turn it 
upside down. Well, I'll see you tonight with your robes on and your veils. No, <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if people would just live such so surrendered to Christ that allow that to dictate in the way they dressed and looked to others? That's the key. Not from the outside in. It's from the inside out. And oh God, thank you for getting me through this today. <laughs> this stuff's getting deeper and deeper. Let's pray. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 